Good morning. Uh, it is a delight to be here. I always feel was here because I always like to see him. I've only known him for 52 years. He's gotten older since I first met him. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, if you'll turn there. I want to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, ever since the garden, Satan has been propagating a lie, and it began, this lie began when he talked to Adam and Eve and basically told them that God was not who he claimed to be. And since the birth of the church, he's been trying to sell the lie to the church that Jesus Christ is not quite God. And it's amazing how we see this manifested throughout church history. And one of the manifestations of this is seen here in Colossae, the, the city to which, the church to which this letter was written. Basically what's happening is, is the people of Colossae, whom Paul has never met, but he knows of them because they sent someone to serve him while he was in prison in Rome. And so he knows all about what's going on in the church. It was actually a church that began as a result of his ministry in Ephesus, and the gospel went out from there. And this church in Colossae is now facing some challenges that Paul hears about from Epaphras, and so he writes this letter in order to confront this issue. And for Paul, this is a huge issue. And so he writes this letter, and I love what he does. He first of all simply gives him the truth about Jesus Christ. We have in this first chapter one of the greatest statements of the supremacy of Christ found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, in some of your editions of the Bible, it will be in the form of a hymn because it is believed by some that this actually was a hymn that was sung in the early church. But listen to these words. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. I'm just going to read this whole paragraph here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, were there things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul's solution here to the problem that cropped up at Colossae. And we see, let me just show you a couple places in Colossae where you see this, the manifestation of this idea that Christ is a little bit less than being fully God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, you see that what was going on is there was a suggestion that you needed to add something to the work of Christ in order to be right with God. So in Colossians 2, verse 18, Paul writes, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Your prize is what you have in Christ. It's what's been given to you as a gift that you did not earn and you didn't deserve. But God deserves to give it to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement 
and the worship of angels taking a stand on visions he has seen. That little expression, taking a stand, means going into great detail. In other words, they think that the height of, of experience, of spiritual experience, is visions that they have seen, and so they want to tell you every detail. And he says, they are inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and they are not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body... Now, he's already identified the head as Jesus Christ. They are not holding to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. He goes on to talk about some of the practices. It's really asceticism. It's, it's uh, severely treating the body so that you think God would feel better about you. And so Paul wants to write and correct this. And he writes these words that I just read. This is the very first part of the book. I just want us to notice a couple things. I think you can see some of the text on the screen. He is the head of the body, the church. I'm sorry, if I were to go back earlier, I don't know what you can see. I'm looking at what I can see. But back in verse 15, what I'd like you to do is if you mark your Bibles, I don't know if you do that sort of thing. It can get real messy, can it? But if you mark your Bibles, you ought to underline three words in this text. The first is image. Because these are identifications of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So underline image. The next is he is firstborn of all creation. And then the third word is he is the head of the body, the church. Now these three terms here in this text describe Jesus in the most wonderful kind of way. They let us know that he has absolute total supremacy in this world over all things. There is nothing you need above or apart from Jesus Christ. He is supreme. And he's supreme in these three ways, as Paul describes it here. And it's a wonderful thing to have in your memory that he is the image of the invisible God and that he is the firstborn of all creation and that he is the head of the church. He's the head of the body, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Let's look at these for a second. First of all, he is the image of the invisible God. That is, he is above all in his relationship to God because he is referred to as the image of the invisible God. That almost sounds contradictory and strange. How can you have an image of something that is invisible? The Bible clearly teaches no one has seen God at any time. But it goes on to say in that passage in John, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him plain, he has explained him that Jesus Christ is the one who makes God visible. Jesus came into the world. One of the primary reasons he came into the world was to make God visible to his people. It's an amazing thing. If you remember in the Old Testament, uh, he told Moses, who wanted to see him, before they moved on out into the wilderness, he wanted God to show himself to Moses. And, and God says to Moses, no one sees my face and lives. Now, Bob Dylan has that in one of his songs, but he didn't write those words. He got them from the Bible. No one sees my face and lives, God said. And yet what God did in sending his own son, he sent the perfect image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's certainly not a physical likeness because we see Jesus, as we read the Gospels, we see Jesus in several situations that shows that he is very much a human being with human limitations. 
For example, in John 4, if you remember, he's traveling, and he has to go through Samaria. And as he goes through Samaria, he is so exhausted, he can't go on. And so his disciples say to him, wait here by this well, and we'll go get you food, and we'll bring it back to you. Have you ever been that tired? Uh, I remember one time I was, uh, we live out in the country, and I was repairing a fence. This guy came out to help me, and it was really hot, like it has been in the last few days. And we worked for about six hours, and I got so faint, I didn't know if I was going to make it back to the house. That's the kind of, of tiredness that Jesus was experiencing as he sat by the well. And yet he's the image of the invisible God. So obviously image doesn't mean that he's the, the physical image. Now, the word that's translated image here, icon, is a word that we have in English. We talk about an icon. This is actually the word icon. But we use that word to, de to describe something that's pointing to some reality. So we have icons of different sports teams. I don't want to mention any lest I get in trouble. But... Uh, we have certain sports teams or cities or endeavors of different kind, and they have an icon. That's not what this word means. At the heart of this word is the idea of manifestation, that Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to see how Jesus thinks of people, how Jesus treats people, look at the way Jesus, as that God treats people, look at the way Jesus treats people. That's a stunning scene, isn't it, the, the, at the well, the woman at the well who meets Jesus. That's a stunning event because of the way Jesus talks to her and relates to her. That's God manifested in the flesh. And so we see the kindness and the love and the glory of the invisible God in the person of Jesus Christ and everything he did was a manifestation of the life of the Father. So if you want to know what the Father's like, I don't know if you remember in John chapter 14, when Philip says to Jesus after he's telling them, I'm going to the Father and prepare a place for you and so forth, and Philip says to him, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus responds and says, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't know me, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? because he is God manifest in the flesh. This second person of the Trinity who has been for, for all eternity coexistent and co-equal with the Father has come into the world and taken on a humanity like ours. So every time we come to the Lord's table together as the people of God, we are remembering that the God of the universe stooped down and came all the way down to where we are, and he took hold of us so that we could be taken up into the very presence of God. So the eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God so that we could be the adopted sons of God and enter right into this family relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when it says that he's the image of God, it's telling us that when you look at Jesus, you see God. There's a, there's a simple little practice I would like to suggest to you. Sometime today or tomorrow, go to John chapter 1 and go through and underline every designation of, the, of Jesus that you find there. You'll find 17 at least. I may have missed one or two. You could find them. Underline every one of them and notice what it says because it is unveiling who Jesus really is in this prologue of the Gospel of John. Let me just give them to you. First of all, we find out that he is God's word for our ignorance. 
And then we find out that he is God's life for our death, and he is God's light for our darkness. He is God's grace for our guilt. He is God's truth for Satan's lie. He is God's bread for our hunger, and God's water for our thirst, and God's glory for our shame, and God's justification for our condemnation. All I'm doing is reading the words that are used in John 1 to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He is God's clothing for our nakedness. He is God's love for our hate and God's wisdom for our folly. Jesus Christ is everything. He is above all because he is God. He's God come in the flesh. He is no less than the Father, but he is not the Father. He is the Son. As you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's used there as a personal name of the Father. And he was, and the Word was God. He wasn't the Father. He had the same nature as the Father. And he has the same nature as the Father. And it was God's idea to send his Son into the world because he wanted us to come to know him. And we come to know him through his Son, who is the image of the invisible God. So this Jesus that we worship is no less than the eternal God. And Paul wants the church at Colossae to know this and to embrace it and to keep it in their heads and in their hearts so that as they worship him, they're not looking for something other than or beyond Jesus Christ. He is central and he is supreme. He is truly God and true God manifest in the flesh. I think it's the most stunning thing in the world that all of us sitting here today, me standing here and you sitting there, all of us without exception, has come to know and, or can come to know the true and living God as he is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? That you can know him. And of course, Peter says what's more important is that he knew you. He knows you. That is something, isn't it? that he knows you. The second word that's used here in Colossians 1 is the word firstborn. And that's his relationship to the creation. In his relationship to God, he is the, he is the image of the invisible God. So he's not anything less than God himself. But secondly, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this is a proof text that some cults use to say that Jesus was created. That's not what this word means at all. That is an impossible meaning for this word based upon the meaning of the word itself and the context in which it's given and the testimony of the entire Bible. Jesus was not created. But this is telling us what his relationship is to every part of creation. All of us, all of us have seen these pictures from the Hubble spacecraft, the telescope, that, uh, the, the Hubble uh, telescope that shows us deep space. And what they're stunned by as they look is there doesn't seem to be any end of it. It is so big. It's so massive. It's so great. It, it would, it's as though no one ha could have created this except the God of the universe. And no one is fit to live in this neighborhood of the creation to call this home like Jesus Christ is. That's why it made it so big. It's his neighborhood. And in fact, the Bible tells us he's coming to this earth to dwell among his people for all eternity. That's an amazing truth. It's amazing anticipation of the future. That's the best part of the future there is. 
that heaven is coming to earth. The kingdom of heaven is going to be on this earth, and we're going to experience what it's like for the goal of God, as he spells it out in Ephesians 1.10, is going to be fulfilled. You know, I know this church, I'm familiar with what you're taught, and I know you're taught about the fact that God has a plan, that he's working his plan, and his plan brings him great delight. But do you know why he's working a plan? It's because he has a goal in mind. And that goal is revealed to us in Ephesians 1.10. And Ephesians 1.10 tells us what the goal is. The goal is an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Now what that means is that God has a goal to create in this creation, to so transform this creation, so renew and restore this creation, that Jesus Christ is going to be the clear and understandable head of all things. He says this administration or this, if you prefer, this dispensation that's suitable to the fullness of times is when everything is headed up in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you. I've lived the Christian life a long time. I don't even want to tell you how long. But I've been a Christian since I was a little kid, and I'm an old man now, and I want to tell you that I still don't have everything in my life manifestly and intentionally under his headship. Now it is under his headship because he's Lord. And in fact, even those who never put trust in him, it says that their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But don't you want your life to come under the headship of Jesus Christ in every single area there is? Of course, we all do as followers of Christ. Well, one of these days, that's exactly how it's going to be. The heading up of all things in Jesus Christ. Everything is going to be put in its proper perspective and place. Christ is going to reign supreme manifestly. Now, he's reigning now. It's just that a lot of times we don't know it. We go through life and we experience certain things, and sometimes we even think, this, man, this world's out of control, isn't it? Things are really out of control. I mean, they're really getting bad. It's really funny for Christians to get together and talk about how bad things are. And now it's not like it used to be. Well, you weren't aware of the fact the way it used to be, things weren't all that right either. But what we know is this secret that has been revealed in Scripture, and that is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God until the Father makes all of his enemies his footstool. If, if, if you wonder why he hasn't come back yet, that's really the simplest answer. The Father hasn't finished the work of making all of his enemies his footstool. That is going to bring this season to an end, and Christ is going to return in glory. And we're going to experience it. We're going to see him as he is. Now, this term, firstborn, means that he's the, what's sometimes referred to as the primogenitor. That is, he is the one who's in charge of all creation. This word was used in the first century for the firstborn child, the firstborn son, sorry ladies, this is the way it was at that time, the firstborn son was the primogenitor, so the entire inheritance would go to him. And then he would dispense to the, his siblings what he believed they should have. I don't like that plan very well because I'm not the firstborn in my family. <laughs> but it came to mean the preeminent one, the one with the authority. 
And so when Paul uses this term, it had come to have this meaning. It meant that he was the sovereign one. He was the one who had all dignity and precedence over everything else in the creation. Now remember, as you know, in John chapter 1, Jesus, uh, Genesis chapter 1 says God created the heavens and the earth. But John says it was the Son who spoke everything into existence. It was God the Son who actually did the speaking. Everything came into existence through him, and nothing came into existence apart from him. He has preeminence over this creation. There's a lot of talk today about people that aren't satisfied with the way they were born or their constitution. Well, guess what? Who's in charge of this? The living Christ. And he's the one who spoke this world into existence. Now, we've marred it, and we've fouled it up in all kinds of ways, but he is the preeminent one. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who has absolute authority. Now, this cannot mean that Christ himself was a creature for a couple of reasons. One is the word doesn't mean that, but secondly, the context itself is very clear that everything came into existence through him. Now, notice what he does here. He, he talks about how he had the right he has the right to be the firstborn of all creation, of every creature, and he gives five reasons. You can underline this in your text as well. First of all, he is the sphere of creation. Now, I say that because in some of your translations, the sentence begins, in him all things were created. This is the first part of verse 16. For in him all things came into existence. In other words, the sphere of creation was the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love Ephesians 1, uh, that glorious promise there. And if you remember, it says, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. The sphere of God's choice was in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That we were chosen in Christ. And here it says, all things were created in the Son. He pictures him as a sphere in which the work of creation took place. And we know how he did it because we're told in other places that he spoke everything into existence. Now, we see a hint of this in his life. For example, when he went to the, the wedding of, the Cana, of Cana of Galilee with his disciples, and they first saw him manifest his glory. That's what we're told in the text. And you remember what happened at this wedding. What happened at the wedding was they ran out of wine. And this was a big shame to the, to the groom and the groom's family that they would have a wedding feast and run out of wine. And so Jesus' mother says to him, they're out of wine. Now the implication was like when any mother says that to a son, when, when a mother tells a son there's some kind of lack, what does she expect? That he makes it right. And so that's what Mary did to Jesus. And you remember what Jesus said to her, don't you? It's a very odd expression. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me or you? My hour has not come. Now, what he was talking about was his wedding feast at which he is going to supply everything that's necessary, which we are going to participate as the people of God. But what she wanted him to do was to display the fact that he could provide what was needed at this wedding. And so Jesus, she tells the servants, do whatever he says. And so Jesus told them to pour water into those pots, pour the water out, then pour water into it. And it turned to wine, and they began to serve it, and it was wine as it was served. 
Well, what was that? That was the firstborn of all creation exercising his prerogative. And he does that in your life all the time. All the time he does that in your life because he is the firstborn of all creation. In him all things were created. The second reason Paul says he has a right to be the firstborn is that he's the agent of creation. Not only is he the sphere of creation, but he's the agent because he said all things have been created by him. And then he says he is the ultimate purpose of creation. This is really stunning that everything was created not only in him and by him, but for him. What does that mean? It was for him. Guess what? You exist for Christ. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, you exist for Christ, for his glory, because he's going to be glorified in his creation. And everything that exists, exists for his glory. The Christian life is really learning how to live according to that principle. Learning how to live with the understanding that all things exist for his glory. So when changes come, I need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge and everything exists for him. And so you hold everything with a loose grip, don't you? Because it exists for him. It all exists for him. I have my granddaughters here with me today, uh, Ashley, and she has a little brother who has a very severe disability who hasn't able to, he's 15 now and he can't walk or talk. And I can remember when he was born and when after a few months we found out that he had this disability and uh, it was so heartbreaking. And his mother, Ashley's mother, came and talked to me in tears and what she was worried about was what if he never comes to the place that he can believe on Jesus? And I said, Austin exists for Jesus. That's why he is alive. He exists for Jesus. And all you have to do is watch the family love him. And you say, wow, what an incredible way to display who Jesus Christ really is. And you have people in your life that sometimes you wonder why are they the way they are. <laughs> well, they exist for Jesus. I knew a... a a young lady that um, was born in a Christian home, but she never became a Christian, but she pretended she was because she wanted to be accepted and loved by her family. And then she went through a season where it became obvious she was not a Christian. And so, you know, you've got to lower the boom on these kids when you discover they're not Christians, right? And um, so she got the idea that now that she had been exposed that she no longer wanted to live in a house where she wasn't wanted. I read this article this week uh, about Dr. Hirsch, who's a, a teacher. A teach, she teaches, uh, she's a professor of counseling at RTS in Orlando. And she went to Cambodia. When I, my last couple years at Valley Bible in the late, in the mid 80s, we had a student come to Grace School of Theology and he was a Cambodian. He's about five foot tall, Paul Newth. And Paul came to the school because he had escaped the killing fields. You know about the killing fields in Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot and the millions that were slaughtered by this maniac. Well, 
this lady went to this area where the Khmer Rouge were, and guess what? They knew that they weren't wanted by anybody. Nobody in the country of Cambodia wanted them now. This was in just recently because of what they had done. They had destroyed the country, and they weren't wanted. And so she said they don't leave their area. They stay very close to their village because they know that if they get out, they're going to be, if they're found out, they're in big trouble. They're not wanted. But they were there as a mission group, and they went to visit a church in this area where the Khmer Rouge are, are that's their roots, and that's where they live. She went to a church service, and she, this is what she said. She said, it was the most vibrant experience of worship I had ever witnessed. There was so much joy, so much emotion, so much confession, so much exaltation and desire for God. They were excited, expectant, enthusiastic, enthralled. And she said, I asked one of the members, I said, is it always like this? And the person responded, yes. They believe that God is the only one that wants them, and so they want him. <laughs> I thought about that young woman when I read this. Because uh, a short time after it became apparent she wasn't a Christian, living in a Christian home. Her dad happened to be a pastor, so that made it all the that much worse. She announced that to her dad that she wasn't a Christian and she didn't want to live with Christians. And the reason I can tell you what it is, she wanted to be somewhere where she was wanted. And so that's what she sought. That's an incredible phrase. It's heartbreaking and yet it's thrilling at the same time. To be totally known her says later, and still to be wanted is the way to liberation. That's the gospel. Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think, but God loves you more than you could ever dream. God knows the truth about you. He knows the truth about you that nobody else knows. He knows the truth about me that nobody else knows. And yet he wants me. Isn't that amazing that God wants us and so he sends his son into the world? It's because God wants to glorify his son. His son is the ultimate purpose of all creation, so God wants his son to be glorified in the way he saves people. I mean, you're all aware that Jesus didn't come into the world. He's a king. And you know how kings are in this world? That they gather people around them so they can get what they need from those people. They like to increase their population, and they like to increase the income of the population so that those people can give something to them. But Jesus is a king who didn't need anything. He said this. He said, even the Son of Man, which was his favorite designation for himself, right out of Daniel, the one for which all creation existed, he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This king comes to his domain in order to give to his people. That's stunning, isn't it? That's why we come around the Lord's table so often, as we want to remember and celebrate this glorious truth that Jesus came into the world to do something for us that we don't deserve. And so we're mystified we know that if, if everybody knew the truth about us, they wouldn't want us, but we know that God wants us.
because he sent his son to rescue us and to bring us into a relationship with him and transform our lives so that they redound to the glory of God. All things exist to bring him glory. Wow. Now, you've got to remember, when Paul wrote this letter, Jesus had been recently shamed publicly, stripped naked, hung on a cross, beaten to a pulp, in a bloody mess hanging on a cross, and he says everything exists for his glory. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, some of you have seen The Passion of Christ, which is just a movie illustration of what happened on the cross, physically. But nobody can look into the heart of Jesus who cries out on the, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why in the world would he agree to a plan in which he would be forsaken, that the Father would turn his back on him. I remember some years ago hearing Steve Fernandes preach on the cross, and, and he was talking about how, you know, it got dark for those three hours, or was it six hours? Look that up, I don't remember. Three hours or six hours, total darkness. People couldn't see, they couldn't move around. Why would God do that? And Steve says, God pulled the shade as he dealt with his son because it was so intimate and so personal on our behalf. What an incredible Savior. All things exist to bring him glory. That's why you exist. That's why God saved you. The Bible says that. It says that, for example, in the Old Testament, it says that he delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage and created them as a people for his glory. And you kind of think, well, wow, they didn't turn out so well, did they? Maybe God's not as good as, as, at this as we thought. Oh, no, he's going to be glorified. Because it was through Israel, the womb of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came into this world. And we're told that he's going to be glorified in the future in a very unusual way. According to Romans 9 through 11, God's going to be glorified by the fact that Gentiles... Who did, whose Messiah he didn't even, they, they don't even own his, him as a Messiah. That is, they're outside the circle of the Messiah, and yet they've come to embrace him and become a part of this glory and this gift of Christ. And Paul says that the way God's going to do it, the way that he's going to bless Israel and be glorified through them, is the gospel's going to go out through these Gentiles, these uncircumcised Gentiles, to the Jews around the world, and they're going to come to faith in Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? How did the gospel come to you? It probably came to you in a very unusual way when you think back on it. You never would have expected it. The way that he brought the good news to you and brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. Why did he do it that way? For his glory. That's how. That's why. Because all things exist for his glory. When, when he appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road and Paul's eyes were open to the glory of Christ, it changed his life forever. Remember that? Changed his life forever. You know, we talk a lot about the filling of the Spirit. What the Bible says about the filling of the Spirit is it brings three glorious blessings. One, it brings enlightenment. The Spirit opens your eyes to the glory of Christ, and all of a sudden you're seeing him like you never saw him before. And secondly, it brings enjoyment. It fills your heart with joy. This is how Peter puts it. He's writing to some people who'd never seen Jesus physically, but they had come to believe the gospel. Now, Peter saw Jesus physically for three and a half years. 
But when he writes to them who had not seen Jesus, he says, even though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And then he goes on, he says, and though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know what brings real joy in the Christian life? And you know why you need joy, right? Because it's the motivator. Nothing like the joy of the Lord to motivate you to live for Christ. And the way that we experience joy in the Christian life is having our eyes open to this truth that's being revealed to us right here. That he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church. He is supreme over all. And you belong to him. He's your savior if you've trusted him. That's stunning. It's glorious. Nothing like relationship to bring joy. All of us are aware we were created for relationship. I've been married for over 50 years. I'm not going to tell you how many years over 50, but we've been married for over 50 years, and my wife, who couldn't be here today, I brought my granddaughter, Ashley, and they do look alike. My wife's a little bit older. Um, but uh, I've been living with her for over 50 years. We've been married for over 50 years. And she brings incredible joy to my life through this relationship. What did God give you? He gave you a relationship. Because he wants to fill your heart with joy. Remember Paul telling the Galatians, he's so upset with them because they've turned from the true gospel and embraced a gospel not quite the gospel. And he says to them, what happened to all your joy? What happened to all your joy? Well, what had happened to all their joy was they closed their eyes to the truth that they had known about Jesus Christ. He's glorious. He is supreme over all. And so Paul, when he meets Jesus on the cross, this, this experience, his eyes being opened to the glory of Christ personally right there on the path. You remember what happened. Jesus strikes him blind with his glorious light. The other men with him saw the light, and they kind of heard a sound, but they didn't understand the words. But Jesus says to, to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because he was going to arrest Christians. He'd been killing Christians because they were following Jesus as the Messiah. And so Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> he wasn't quite sure who this was. And so Jesus told him who he was, and it changed his life forever over the next few days and the next few years, in fact. He came to know Jesus intimately. Now, knowing Jesus intimately is not just being familiar with him. You're familiar with the President of the United States, but you're not intimate with him. I don't think. Maybe somebody here is a real close friend, but I doubt it. See, we know a lot of people. My, my grandson is here. One of my 12-year-old grandson is here from uh, Missouri, and he's a big fan of Cleveland. And so we watched the finals, the NBA finals together, and he was greatly disappointed, <laughs> greatly disappointed, and so I just kind of turned the screw <laughs> because he had exalted James in his mind so high, the greatest basketball player in the world. He, he, is, a, he is familiar with LeBron James, but he doesn't know him. 
The only way to have joy in the Christian life is to come to have intimacy, a true knowledge, a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, God goes to great extent to produce that in our lives. I mean, God really bends over backwards for you to come to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because, you, as you know, he, he, didn't, he not only sent his son to die for our sins, but then he sent the Holy Spirit to be the presence of Christ in our lives. In Galatians, he says he sends him as the spirit of adoption to enter into our hearts and cause our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, who in the world do you call Abba, Father? Who do you call Daddy? Who is it in your life that you have, you're on such intimate terms that you could refer to him as your dad? I was sitting in the room when my father passed away, and I heard him breathe his last breath. He took a very deep breath. We knew he was dying, and I was sitting there about 2 o'clock in the morning, and he exhaled, and he never inhaled again. He was gone. But I, had, I was very close to my dad. I could call him dad. And, bef and a few years before that, I called him daddy because he knew me, and I knew him. And it's only through intimacy that we come to have the joy of this relationship with Christ. It's not just being familiar. It's not just knowing theological truth. I love theology. But it's not just knowing about, the, the, about Christology, the doctrine of Christ. It's not just knowing about that he's a theanthropic person, that he, is, that he is fully God and fully man. Those are wonderful truths. But coming to know him intimately has to do with relationship. John White an author who wrote a book called Daring to Draw Near some years back says, you and I will continue to be only familiar and not intimate until we begin to relate to him as he really is and not as our twisted heart wants him to be. One of the things people, sometimes Christians, are professing Christians don't want you to tell them is the truth about who Christ is. They want him to be an, an something that they can s sort of control and know in their own limited way, rather than to say, no, I really want to know him. Even if I can't understand everything about him, I want to really know him. And that's what God has called us to, and he sent us the Spirit so that that would be our experience as believers. You know, every believer has the Holy Spirit. You're all aware of that, right? Uh, every believer, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, because if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you couldn't know Christ. But the Spirit has come to live within you so that you could come to know Christ on intimate terms, so that you could know him intimately. He gives two other reasons that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. The fourth one is he's independent of all creation. He is before all things. That's before all creation in time and primacy. He is above and beyond all things. One last thing I want to emphasize, and that is this. I'm going to stop after this. He, it, he is the only one fit to be the firstborn of all creation because he is intimately involved in all creation. It says in him, verse 17, in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Jesus Christ maintains in being what he has created. That sounds odd. The Bible speaks in the Old Testament of God feeding the animals out in the wilderness. It's as though he personally makes sure that they have the food that they need because this is his creation. Did you see that newspaper article where the people forgot they had put their baby in a little floating device and, a, and it drifted out 
into this, see? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that if God were like that? Sometimes we think he is. He's forgotten us. He doesn't know what's going on in my life. I, I remember a conversation with a very good friend of mine who was going through a horrible trial, and he would call me up about 4 o'clock in the morning, and he would say, I don't see how God could let this happen. Well, I know you can't, but God can. Right? He is a lot bigger than us, isn't he? I know we're really smart, but God is bigger than we are. You can get a THD, a PhD, any kind of doctrine you want. The fact is, you're never going to know God like he knows you. You're never going to know God like God knows God. And the wonderful thing is he has chosen to reveal himself in Christ Jesus. So he is, in him, all things hold together. He maintains in being what he brought into being. I love that. He spoke the world into existence. He poured out the waters, we're told, of the Nile and the Euphrates and the Mississippi. This is the one who created all things, and he provides for all things. What a glorious God. And he's holding all things together for his own purpose. Let me ask you something. What is in danger of coming apart in your life? What's really worrying you right now? You understand what anxiety is? Anxiety is that feeling you get when you're driving down the highway and you've been on the road all day and you, you're out in the wilderness somewhere and you look at your gas gauge and it says empty and you see a sign that says next gas 65 miles. And you know that feeling in the pit of your stomach? That's called anxiety. It means that you don't think you have the resources to meet the challenge ahead of you. It's like when you get a letter that says, uh, we miscalculated your taxes, you need to send us a check for $5,800 before the 30th. Well, maybe some of you, that's no problem at all, I understand, but for me, that would be a shocker. That's anxiety. Well, sometimes we can ask ourselves, what am I anxious about? And we can tell what it is that's coming apart in our lives. Can Jesus hold that together? That's the question. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident, Paul, this is Paul writing, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, and he's talking in the context about his work of making them fruitful in the Great Commission. Fruitful as gospelizers, as disciple makers. And he says, I am convinced and confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, Philippians, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's easy as pa pastors get nervous about their people not being able to do what call God's called them to do. I, I would like to, for you to understand, uh, I'm a pastor, uh, but I can't make people effective. I can't provide people with what they need. All I can do is declare God's word, apply God's word, speak God's word, but I can't make them fruitful, but God can. And that's what he's promised. He saved you in order to use you to make disciples and to bring glory to his son and to enjoy that glorious process. When things start flying apart in our lives, why do we run to those who can't fix it? Why don't we run to the only one who can? John White, in that same book, says we crave human support because we've never truly learned to rest in God. Is God able? Have you ever just rested in God and he came through? And you, and you really wondered if he was going to, but then he comes through. 
in such a glorious way. And then you testify to it, don't you? You testify to it. You know, Malachi chapter 3 says that what happens when people's eyes are opened to who God is, they talk to each other about it. And God listens in on the conversations. I, I'm sure all of you are aware of the fact that if you can't talk to a fellow Christian about Christ, you're never going to talk to an unbeliever about Christ. And when God is doing those kind of things in your life, man, tell somebody. My sister and brother, tell someone about what God has done and how he's been faithful and he's come through and he's done what you desperately needed him to do but you had lots of doubts but you decided just to wait on God and God came and he held things together. Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together, not only out there but in your hearts and lives. The purpose of the church of Jesus Christ can be summed up this way. We exist to proclaim with our lips and our lives, that is the way we live, that Jesus Christ is above all. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. In John 13, verse 34, I think it is, Jesus says to his disciples, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Now, let me ask you something. This is a real simple, practical question. How in the world are people going to come to know and see that you love one another? The only way they're going to see that is if your evangelism and your disciple-making are as done as communities. When you bring people in amongst yourselves and they see the way you love one another, it's going to be stunning to them. Jesus says it will testify to them that you are his disciples as they observe the fact that you love one another. Sometimes what happens to us, we get out by ourselves trying to explain the gospel to somebody, and there's no, there's no a testimony by our lives that we, what he's done for us, because what he's done for us is best seen in community. It's seen in the way we love each other, the way we worship together, the way we forgive each other, the way we encourage each other. And so what you need to do is bring people into this context, this community, that love one another the way Christ loved us. Let me close with this quote. A.W. Tozer said, What a man thinks of Jesus Christ is the most important thing about himself, about him. He also said, What a man thinks about God. But he also said this, What a man thinks about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about him and will determine the whole course of his life. And he goes on to say, A church's view of Jesus Christ will determine his spiritual life and power. It's what we think of Christ. And I, I just want to say it again. He is above all. He is supreme. There is none like him. There's none like him. There is no one like Jesus. He is above all.